If you'll indulge me a personal moment, thank you to all those who reached out this week uh, when I wrote uh, in my little weekly email now. Uh, thank you for the encouragement and the ongoing prayers uh, as we uh, deal with things uh, in family. Uh, my oldest daughter uh, goes back to college this morning. Uh, my middle daughter has uh, been there a, a week and a half for um, sorority stuff. You ever just feel kind of flat, you know? You're, 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 you're here to do the thing you're supposed to do, but you just feel kind of flat. And I didn't realize it until this morning. I took a book off my shelf and uh, was referencing something, um, and my eye caught the back cover uh, one of the paragraphs of endorsement. There were four endorsers, and I'm reading the paragraph and realize it's, it's me. I, I wrote that. I'm the endorser on the back cover. I didn't even realize I was reading my own endorsement of the book, and I thought, well, I think I'm kind of flat. So um, that's okay. God uh, can, can uh, use a run-flat uh, tire as much as uh, one that's uh, uh, fully pumped. But I appreciate songs that lift, and those songs this morning that uh, Ken uh, was directed by God's Spirit to lead us in uh, were just what I needed. And so I'm, I'm grateful. I get to experience it the second time in the next service. So I'm grateful I get to sing those songs again. I need them. And I need this text. I need uh, 1 Thessalonians. This is the letter that we're in for August, September, and October. We began 1 Thessalonians last Sunday with a sweep through the first chapter. We come back now to the second chapter. So let me read you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in its entirety. It's just 10 verses, and then we'll move into the message. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take those three phrases today and, and build the message around work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. That's what's coming. For we know, verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, the surrounding areas. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Now, our first pass through this chapter last Sunday, I gave us a continuum uh, just to try to help us think of credibility, which is our theme for looking at 1 Thessalonians, what is credible confession, what is credible witness. Today, second sweep through the same chapter, uh, 
I want to clear up what might have been a misunderstanding from uh, last week. Last week, it may have sounded to some like I was endorsing mediocrity because I put incredible on an extreme end of the continuum that I introduced you to last week. And people say, well, I thought we were supposed to be excellent in our faith. I, I, I thought we were supposed to uh, uh, try to uh, give our, our all to Jesus. And, and I wasn't saying we aren't supposed to do that. Incredible on this continuum here is about missing the relevance of the gospel ongoing. The gospel believed is not just what you, that you believe it just to get in the door. <laughs> you, you believe it ongoing. The relevance of the gospel ongoing. I said last week that the gospel is only relevant to people who've known pain. Think about it. The gospel is only relevant to people who've known disruption, to people who know failure. The gospel is only really relevant to people who know what a mess they could make of things and maybe already have made of things. And we know this about ourselves still after meeting Jesus. J.I. Packer, who just spent his first month in heaven, years ago wrote these words. I've come back to them probably for the last 30 years since I discovered them that long ago. Here's his, uh, his sentence. Holy people glory not in their holiness, but in Christ's cross. For the holiest saint is never more than a justified sinner and never sees himself any other way. Holy people glory, not in their holiness, but in Christ's cross, because uh, the holiest person is never more than a justified sinner and never sees themselves any other way. What's meant by incredible then, when we're looking at this on a continuum, is any way we see ourselves as something other than justified sinners. Pride overtakes when we do or it seeps in. We sit in judgment of the broken and those who struggle. These believers in ancient Thessalonica were not incredible. I don't want to put them in that light. Nor were they uh, discredited. There being examples, see verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, that doesn't require being a cut above. That doesn't require being a super Christian. We, I think, have that idea. If I'm going to be an example, that means everything's got to be perfect and just so, and it doesn't. Anybody can be faithful when all is well. They were faithful in affliction. That's the word we're given in verse 6. And we'll unpack that word as we go through 1 Thessalonians because it's a part of the drivetrain of the, of the message of the letter. They were faithful in affliction. So I gave you a continuum last week. Uh, I think it's up on the screen, the credibility continuum. Credible faith, hope, and love. That's what the letter is really about. Incredible is one extreme. Discredited is another. I gave you this uh, continuum. It's just sort of a, a, a pictorial way to picture the, the message of the book. Incredible on one pole. And then the other pole is discrediting ourselves. And you realize we do this not just by hypocrisy, but also by not resiliently weathering trouble. Uh, the disappointment that we create for those on the outside looking in when we don't weather trouble 
You know, we think that, well, we're discredited by hypocrisy and my creed and conduct don't match up and I've got these inconsistencies. And that's part of it, yes, in the discrediting side. But fair weather faithfulness is discrediting. Remember Jesus' words? Some of his toughest words are love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he connected that to faithfulness to him, that faithfulness to him means loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. That's so counterintuitive. It seems practically impossible to do. That's so high shelf that no one can, can reach it. And without a Holy Spirit involved, Holy Spirit is mentioned in verses 5 and 6, it is impossible to do. But you know, nobody actually expects us to do that. Nobody actually expects us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Everyone expects Christians to be as, inv- as vindictive and self-justifying as anyone else because they've seen us be. They don't expect that we'd be really different. Why did Jesus tell us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Just using his words as an example here. Well, that counterintuitive action is how we credibly demonstrate that the Holy Spirit of God is working in us, which means we actually have to have some trouble. We have to have some affliction. We have to have some enemies and people opposed to us in order to show this. I wish it wasn't that way, but I have learned to be thankful it is because troubles of all kinds reveal us. And the Thessalonian Christians knew troubles and the American Christians know troubles, we do. Troubles of all kinds, they, they reveal us, they show whether we know we have resources in Christ or not and whether we use them if we have them. Let's look again at verse 3. Verse 2, he says, this is what we pray for you. We remember as we pray, verse 3, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come back to faith, hope, and love throughout this letter. So what I want to do today, last Sunday was just introducing this continuum. Today, let me come back to get our takeaways from these three phrases in verse 3 with the whole chapter in view. Let's talk about work of faith. Let's talk about labor of love. And let's talk about steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ as it's phrased there in verse 3. So first, work of faith. Simple three-part message today. What is a a credible work of faith? You see the phrase there in verse 3. This is what we remember before God and Father, your work of faith. What is a credible example of the work of faith? Well, how about forgiveness as an example? Forgiveness is a work of faith, is it not? Faith that God is a better justice maker than I am. If I don't believe that, that God is a better justice maker than I am, then nothing stops me from seeking vengeance. Why not be as vindictive and grudge holding and hateful and self justifying about it as everybody else? Why love my enemies by offering them forgiveness? If they're my enemies, there's something to forgive. And one way we love our enemies is to offer them forgiveness. Why, why do that? Why pray for those who persecute me? 
That is, pray for them to know the gracious forgiveness of God, though they have hurt me and I have ought against them. Forgiveness is an example of the work of faith, as we have it phrased here in verse 3. It says in verse 6, they became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. If you look over in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, we were torn away from you. The ministry in Thessalonica was cut short. The Thessalonians got robbed of Paul because riots were started. You can go back and read it in Acts 17. And so Paul had to be uh, under cloak of darkness, removed for his own safety from the city. These folks got robbed of, of having the benefit of more time with them, which is what he wanted and they wanted. Many in old Thessalonica, Jews and Greeks both, had wronged these Christians. And if the gospel was going to flourish in Thessalonica, if the gospel was going to make inroads in Thessalonica, these Christians had to forgive those who caused them affliction. They couldn't, they couldn't bear witness and bear grudge at the same time. They cancel each other out. Yeah, God can go around us. He does a lot. But he prefers to go through us by way of what he's doing in us. You know, we presently live in a culture that will crave forgiveness if it doesn't already. The mobs online and in person, the mobs that shame people for their sins are anything but forgiving. Have you noticed the heavy moralism of our particular cultural context? If you're guilty or just perceived to be guilty of something that call out culture, cancel culture, condemns, you're toast. You don't have any hope of any kind of resurrection. You're not going to get your, your reputation rehabilitated. It's over for you. To be vilified by graceless, moralistic self-righteousness is the worst kind of vilification because it cuts off from forgiveness. It says, well, you know, he or she doesn't deserve it, which totally misses the point of forgiveness as God practices it. And we do too. Look again, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You didn't just do it our way, Paul says. You did it God's way too. You learned from Him through us and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, continuing to teach you the things of Jesus. That's His role in our lives. There's a movie called Calvary. It's, uh, it's about an Irish priest played by uh, Brendan Gleeson. And in this movie, it, it's a very difficult community. It, it touches on some of the abuse scandals in the Catholic Church and how it came into this particular Irish community. And Brendan Gleeson plays a priest who is haggard and tired of dealing with the sins of that particular community. And there's a moment in the film where he's uh, talking with his daughter on the phone and he says, you know, there is so much talk of sin around here, but nothing of forgiveness. And his words to her is, I think forgiveness has been highly underrated. You know, that's, you know why that is. It's because it's a lot easier to keep people tied to their sins. 
After 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to enter a very controversial subject in our circles. I'm going to talk about a short series on biblical justice, biblical social justice. Because evangelicals consider ourselves to be biblical people. We say that about ourselves. We're people who are led to our views of God and Jesus by the Bible. And yet, we miss just how much the Bible has to say about doing justly. And how close this reality is to the very heart of God. Yes, it's been politicized in our day. It's become a domain of progressive politics. I understand that. And I'm not going to come at it in some angry way. We need to understand what's going on, not just in our culture. We need to understand what's going on in Scripture and in the heart of God. And one of the things that we'll hopefully see in that series is how doing justly is a work of faith. And I hope we also see that God never addresses justice without also addressing reconciliation because reconciliation is what justice is for. Walking away from, from one another is not for Christians an option. Forgiveness must be in the equation or the work for justice is not a work of faith. It's just a bunch of noise as, as any other noise out there. The greatest possible inducement for people to change, to see people repent of, of whatever role we have in social problems, for instance, the greatest possible inducement to people changing is the opportunity to receive forgiveness. Without forgiveness, we're left with an endless cycle of retribution. And it's not just forgiveness received, it's also forgiveness extended. Mutual forgiveness is the only thing that's ever going to overcome division. The world opposes the work of faith that is doing justly with forgiveness attached. Because that means we have to give up our self-justification. And we don't want to give that up. Our being right. And the reason the world can't give that up, and the world is so moralistic about what they think they're right about, the world can call attention to the need to do justly but can't bring it about through shaming people into it, is because the world is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He's in the world, working in the world, but he indwells Christians in the world. And as he indwells us, verses 5 and 6 talk about the work of the Spirit, his work is to resource us through Christ to be and do as Jesus did. Look again at verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, verse 5, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And he'll go into chapter 2 to talk more detail about what kind of men they were. Listen, Howard Hendricks said it all the time. It was one of his... One of his lines he used, you cannot impart what you do not possess. We don't forgive because it's a good thing to do. Using forgiveness as an example of work of faith. A work of faith they were doing in Thessalonica and that we do in Memphis. We don't forgive because it's a good thing to do. Forgiveness is mentally and emotionally healthy. Studies confirm it. <laughs> it is a good thing to do. There's personal benefit to it. But that's not why we give ourselves to this work of faith that is forgiving. We forgive because we've been forgiven, period. No, it's not as easy as that. I'm not saying so. But I'm saying in actual effect, the reason why, if somebody says, why did you forgive me? Because I've been forgiven. 
This is wrought in us. It's not worked out from us. It's not summoned up from deep inside us in the better part of our character. Look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What kind of joy is that? It's the joy of being freed from needing to get even with people who give me trouble. (laughs) I like the Princess Bride. Probably a lot of you do too. It's okay to confess that here, that you like that maybe. And there's the little scene where the they, they come back and report to the, to the bad king. There's a Spaniard giving us some trouble. Well, you give him some trouble, you know. That's our reflex. That's, that's just in us. In Christ, we get resources that counteract that reflex. That reflex will always be in me. Somebody's doing me wrong. Well, I'm going to do them back. I've got to have resources that counteract that. Work of faith. It's an ongoing work. It's not just one time. It's ongoing. Second of three phrases in verse 3 now. Labor of love. Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love. Now again, let me invoke Jesus here, his phrase, love your enemies. Because this, as an example, it sort of takes it out to the, uh, the most uh, in, in intensified expression of this. Why is invoking Jesus' words to love our enemies, why is that particularly apropos for this letter? Because old Thessalonica was not an easy place to be a Christian. People in that city, from the magistrates on down to your next door neighbor, made themselves your enemy when you didn't worship the emperor, which the Christians didn't, even though the very coinage they used said, Caesar is God, so is his son Augustus. The money claimed the divinity of the emperor. And Thessalonica had the goddess Roma. And they had other gods and goddesses from Mount Olympus, some 60 miles to the southwest, visible on a clear day. And if you were not worshiping those gods, you were hurting the economy. If you knew somebody in your neighborhood was hurting the economy... How would you feel about them? Hurting your bottom line. If you thought that plagues and pandemics come about because somebody made the gods angry and you point the finger at the Christians, that's what happened back in ancient times. The reason my kid is sick is because you don't go to Roma's temple and you've upset her. You've got to get a sense of the kind of scorn and shaming That was the daily experience of Christians in a very difficult place to live. And so he says to them, your your labor of love. And you think about, love your enemies. That's what they were doing. Look at how that's phrased, labor of love. The wording is intentional. Some translations toil. When you think of toil, you think of hard work. It's no labor to love the people who love you back. It's no labor to love the people who are just like you. When he tells them that they are laboring at love, it's loving those who were very much unlike them, loving those who even hated them. 
Are you saying I'm supposed to feel warm affection for them? No, that's not what love is. Love certainly involves feelings, but at its core, at its core, love involves choices. John Perkins is now 90 years old. John Perkins is a civil rights icon, wrote a book. His story is called A Quiet Revolution. I've had the pleasure of meeting him on a couple of occasions. In his book, A Quiet Revolution, he describes the night that he was beaten nearly to death in a jail in Brandon, Mississippi. This is back in the 60s. He participated in a nonviolent civil rights march. We all know what was going on in the 60s. But this is how John Perkins, a man God has greatly used, writes about that experience. His words, during my night in the jail at Brandon, God began something new in my life. In the midst of the crowded, noisy jailhouse, between the stomping and the blackjacking that we received, between the moments when one of the patrolmen put his pistol to my head and pulled the trigger, click, and when another later took a fork and bent the two middle prongs down and pushed the other two up my nose until blood came out, between the reality and the insanity, between the consciousness and the unconsciousness that would sweep across my dizzy mind, between my terror and my unwillingness to break down, between my pain and my fear and those little snatches of thought when in some miraculous way I could be at once the spectacle and the spectator, God pushed me past hatred just for a little while, moments at a time. How could I hate when there was so much to pity? How could I hate people I suddenly did not recognize who had somehow moved past the outer limits of what it means to be humane? But I don't think it was just the pity or the deep sickness I saw that pushed me past hatred. It was also the fact that I recognized my own brokenness. The Brandon experience just might have been God's way of bringing me to the place where he could expand his love in me and extend my calling to white people as well as to black people. I believe that it was in my own broken state that the depth of the sickness in those men struck home to me and the fact that I was like them at heart, totally depraved. I had evidence before me and in myself that every human being is depraved. There's something built into all of us that makes us want to be superior. It's a spiritual problem, black or white. We all need to be born again. There's how John Perkins gave himself to this labor and still does now into his 90s. How will you? How will we? How will we give ourselves to this effort, to this labor? The only way I know is by the Holy Spirit drilling down into you and to me that we got in on God's love when we were yet his enemies. Somehow that's got to move from concept and Sunday school idea to something I actually value and practice. And it probably doesn't make that shift, that move from being a, a loose screw that I recognize to being something drilled down in me by the Holy Spirit unless there is some pain, some affliction, the kind of affliction through which God teaches me that oh, though I have a lot in this world, materially, relationally, even in health, though I have a lot in this world, I really only have Christ. Because I can lose my health, I can lose my creature comforts and my relationships, I can lose my means and my ends, I can. 
But I cannot lose what God has freely given me in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 8 that the word of the Lord sounded forth from them. That their reputation preceded them as credible Christians. They had credible faith, credible love, credible hope. Why? Why were these Christians the kind of people you could get close to? They weren't super Christians. You could access them. You could access them, and yet when you did, you wanted more of Christ for being around them. You weren't so amazed by them as you were amazed by their experience of God in their midst. They weren't just willing to work in faith. They were laboring in love, at love, which we may not get a return on. You realize that. We're told to love. We're, we're not told we'll be loved back. Only God loves unconditionally. Contrary to Florida Georgia Line, the country band, not God, your mama, and me. Okay. Only God. In every other love, conditions apply. And you may not be loved back by neighbors or by brothers, but we give ourselves to the labor anyway. <laughs> you know what I'm finding at 51 in my experience of God and my experience of life, and they're not one and the same? God is not life. I can curse life all I want to, but I don't curse God. God is over life. He's the giver of life. He's the blesser of life. But you know what I'm finding is that a lot of this is just do it anyway. Just do it anyway. I don't feel like it, just do it anyway. It's not the Nike slogan, warmed over and Christianized. It's just do it anyway. Because as you do, you're not looking for certain feelings or even certain things to happen, though that's nice when it does. You're looking to be close to God, as close as you can get to Him in your lifetime. It, we give ourselves to the labor of love anyway. It's, it's, not a, it's not a labor of trying to feel a certain way about others. Look, if, take the feelings out of it. If you hurt me or you hurt someone I love, I, I won't feel good toward you. But is it possible to still want for you the goodness of God? Even to just want that for one who has caused me pain is a good start on this labor of love, the labor at love. And now third from verse 3, the steadfastness of hope. Again, we're using verse 3 as sort of a lens on the whole chapter. Verse 3, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. The steadfastness of hope. Paul's commending them for this, even though he will have to later in the second letter, second Thessalonians that he sends, he'll confront some among them who were discrediting their hope. And the way they were doing it is they were thinking that the anytime reality of Jesus' return means Jesus is probably immediately coming back, and so we better look busy for God. We need to quit our jobs. The church will take care of us. And we'll, um, we'll, we'll just spend our time looking for his return. Now, there are hints of that in 1 Thessalonians, but 
again, in the end of 2 Thessalonians, if you want to read it later, end of 2 Thessalonians, there's only three chapters in that letter. He'll directly address this. I wonder if this phrase, steadfastness of hope, strikes you as maybe also counterintuitive. Like I was saying earlier about uh, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, how that's, that's counterintuitive directly, clearly. But what I'm getting at is we so often think and talk of hope as something we're prone to lose. I lost my hope. I'm hopeless. If hope is lost, it means I don't see any more possibility for this thing that I want. Or we talk about hoping against hope. You've heard people say, he hoped against hope. That means we cling to the slightest possibility, the merest possibility, like for college football. (laughs) Will COVID be the national champ this year? Will the SEC play? Will the University of Memphis play? When you listen to the sports talk guys, and I do, I've got satellite radio in my truck and I've got about five or six presets of sports talk. And they have for the last two, three weeks been endlessly discussing the possibilities. As they do, the thing that I've noticed is that there's not a one of them in which there's any steadfastness of hope, which is no criticism of them. The reason there isn't is because nobody really knows whether the risk of playing is worthwhile. Nobody really knows that. Multiple opinions, but here's what steadfastness of hope requires, knowing what's coming, knowing what's coming. So when Paul commends steadfastness of hope, he means what Christians know right now about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 3, it's the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, for us, to the end and beyond it. What's this about? It's not about clinging to the possibility. Biblical hope is not, I'll cling to the possibility, even by my fingernails, that maybe I hope this is all true. Emergency flare prayers going up. I hope it's all true. Jesus might be who he said he was. Might be who the apostles say. Maybe it's all true. I hope so. I hope it is. It's not that. It's not clinging to it. Rather, it's confidence. Not arrogance. Steadfastness of hope in experience is confidence that what I know about the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing it from Scripture and the experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, I can put all my weight on what can be known of Jesus. I can tie my life to him that that he is as just and merciful, that he is as compassionate and clear-eyed, he is as gracious and full of truth as I've heard about him. If I cling to a mere possibility, I hold open the chance that I'll be disappointed in the object of my hope. Steadfastness of hope, by contrast, knows the object of my hope will not disappoint. Church will disappoint. Christian culture will disappoint. There's a host of things. As, as I counsel young people sometimes and get into discussions with them. They're, they're disappointed in the older ones and they're disappointed in this and they're disappointed in that. And the older ones are disappointed in them. It goes both ways. We're trying to help them see that it, it's, yeah, you're going to be disappointed in, in 
in all of these outside, inside kinds of factors. But if you really look at the person of Jesus Christ, who he's presented to us to be, his teaching, his way, his truth, his life, and he becomes the object of your hope, you know he will not disappoint. It says verse 10 that they were waiting for his son, Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What could be better than that? To be so valuable to the one who covers every one of our flaws and faults. The evil we do, the good we fail to do, our unrighteousness, our self-righteousness. For all of that, the world stands under condemnation, rightly so. God doesn't hate this world. His wrath, mentioned there in verse 10, his wrath means he hates what's in, what has infected and broken his world. He doesn't hate the world. He hates our sin. Those in Christ are most credible when we're confident in his abiding goodness. That's the steadfastness of, of hope. When we know that we know. I can doubt a lot of things. I can struggle with a lot of realities. But what holds, the anchor that holds, is knowing that I know that he has taken away the fear of death and judgment because of his goodness and his grace. And so we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What could be better than that? Grace to you and peace. Let's pray together. Stand with me and we'll sing after we pray. Prayer is a privilege given to us, Lord, not because we've earned it. It's, um, it's access to you in all your mercy, in all your power. And we can bring anything to you. Lord, we, um, we have so much to bring to you. Things of the world, things of our own lives. Character qualities we want to grow in. Things that we need to repent of, change course, change direction, attitudes, actions we carry that uh, interfere with credibility. We pray, Father, that you will help us in our weaknesses, in our frailties, to know your strength, and in our strengths and successes to also realize that your grace is perfected in weakness. Your power made perfect there. And so whatever road we find ourselves on this morning, uh, whether we find ourselves running flat, uh, running hot, whatever you know by your spirit, Lord, who we are, we thank you for your indwelling spirit and how he mediates the presence and the power of Jesus to us. That we don't have to be the sum total of our reactions and reflexes, We've been resourced by you to live in this world until you come in such a way that we can magnify your gospel and maximize those things that bring you glory. But we need your help. It doesn't come natural or easy to us. So keep us at it. Keep us just doing it anyway. Looking forward to the day when the scales fall from our eyes and we see Jesus 
as he is, the Lord and Savior we prize him to be. We thank you that we can have confidence in your goodness to us through him and that it's true. And we thank you in his name. Amen.